with me to Mark chapter 15. And the title of this morning's message is Almost Finished. Mark chapter 15. Almost finished. All right. And we're almost finished with the, with the gospel of Mark, by the way. Uh, today we're, we're going to be concluding chapter 15, going into chapter 16 next Sunday. And, um, and then we'll go from there. I'll announce next Sunday what we're going into. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, but that title, I'll explain it after we read uh, a few verses here. Verses 21 through 32 is where we're going to start. So Mark chapter 15 Verse 21. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Father, as we consider the, the, the beginning verses of what we're going to cover this morning, Father, Help us, first and foremost, to, to consider you. Lord, in the sacrifice that you were so willing to follow through with, on behalf of the world which hated you, which was opposed to you, which didn't understand exactly what was happening, even in this moment, Also, Lord, may we consider those who were mocking and reviling and, Lord, having utter contempt for you. Let us remember, Lord, even in this moment, that your disciples had scattered as soon as, as trouble really hit. As soon as they were faced with the possibility of losing their lives, how it is that they, they all ran. And then help us in that, Lord, to learn from what we have before us, that our faith in you may be complete that we may be of a conviction, Lord, that is immovable. One that does not flinch. 
in the midst of adversity or conflict. But Lord, uh, a faith and a conviction, Lord, that is it truly immovable. Because our hope is, is placed squarely on Jesus Christ and our salvation. It is a gift by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. It does not change with the circumstances that we are faced with. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. We ask, Lord, your blessing. Instruct us. Give us understanding. I pray, Lord, stir our hearts and help us to understand just how much you love us. Your grace, your mercy, your compassion, your patience, Lord, how it is that you express that to us on a daily basis as we constantly fall short of being faithful to you when you are always faithful to us. And so, Lord, we thank you, Lord. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. There's a man by the name of Simon, as we read, who helped Jesus carry his cross. It was a Roman centurion who confessed that Jesus truly is the Son of God. We also know that it was Joseph of Arimathea who buried Jesus in his tomb. In saying that, we need to also acknowledge the fact that it wasn't it was Simon of Cyrene. It wasn't Simon Barjona. It wasn't Peter who helped. It wasn't any of Jesus' disciples who testified while Jesus was being crucified, while being, he was being mocked and tortured. It wasn't any of his disciples that were standing there next to the cross, testifying of who was on the cross. And it certainly was not those who were closest to him who took his body and buried him in the tomb. You see, Jesus' disciples had all scattered. They all left him. And I couldn't help but think about how it is that for us at times, we do the very same thing. And yet, Jesus did not dispose of his disciples, did not turn away or forsake those who forsook him, but rather, he continued on in the Father's will until he completed the will of the Father. My hope is as you consider this, that you realize that whatever it is that we're facing in life, whatever circumstances we're going through, navigating through, whatever difficulties we face, however we're forsaken, however we are let down, that we take our eyes off of ourselves and we put them squarely on the Lord. 
Knowing that whatever it is that we're enduring is for the sake of fulfilling the Father's will. Whatever that may be. Jesus was going to the cross and nothing deterred him. Nothing distracted him. Nothing stopped him from fulfilling the Father's will. You see, all of this happened according to God's will to finish the work of atoning or paying the penalty for our sins. Satisfying in that moment when Jesus shed his blood to satisfy the wrath of God toward and against our sin. And having been confirmed to be dead, as he hung on the cross, Jesus' resurrection should have been anticipated. And yet, after having told his disciples time and time again, it wasn't. How often, how often have we been told, have we learned, have we studied God's promises And in that moment that we face trials and tribulation in our lives, we fail to acknowledge the truth of God's words and his promises. We too fail to anticipate that which is true. And we're filled with anxiety, worry, concern about the things we already know about. We've already been told. Well, Whether it's anticipated or not, Jesus' words stood. What he stated, he would be delivered, condemned to death, mocked, spat upon. He told them all of this, and and it had happened at this point. He told them that he would be flogged and killed. But after three days, he would rise from the grave. Just when Jesus' disciples were thinking that all hope was lost, Jesus will rise just as he said he would, and in him they will know victory over sin and death. They will know that. But for now, as we think about this moment, in this moment Jesus is in the process of fulfilling the Father's will and securing that victory. Again, in the face of of mockery, of dissension, of just absolute disgust in him. Even through all that, he continued on that path to Golgotha. You see, in this moment, you could say that Jesus' enemies thought that they had finally gotten what they were hoping for. To destroy Jesus and shut him up. Well, he's finally on his way. To the cross. As they cried out, the, the crowds cried out, crucify him. As the religious leaders had hoped to destroy him, back chapters earlier in, in the Gospel of Mark as we studied, now it's being fulfilled. And of course, the enemies of God are thinking, finally, this is it. We are at the point of seeing the destruction of Jesus and shutting him up. Not only that, but where are his disciples? They're nowhere to be found. We have finally shut them up as well. Not wanting to hear anything about who Jesus claimed to be. 
Oh, the Father's work, though, is almost finished. Almost there. But when Jesus is resurrected, then his work will be finished. And then Jesus, after having spent 40 days of appearing to his disciples, many, over the course of 40 days, he will ascend and sit down at the right hand of the Father. You see, what the enemies of God mean for evil, God always means for good. We need to, again, just just think about the things that we're faced with, the trials that we go through, how it is that perhaps at times we're mistreated or forsaken, and know that there's a bigger picture. Even in that moment, it's not about you. It's not about the individual. It's always about God's glory. Remember, it's in the darkest of days when God seems to be nowhere in the most difficult of times and his enemies seemingly are prevailing that God is indeed working. He never quits. He never stops working as we sing. Even when we don't see it, even when we don't feel it, God is at work. And he will always be victorious. For there is none above him, none more powerful than him. He is sovereign. He is God Almighty. Rest assured, even though his enemies may think that they're prevailing against him and over his people, rest assured that the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church. That's why our faith, it can can stand strong in the promises of God, knowing that our hope rests not in our trials, our circumstances, our situations, or not in any other person, but in the person of Christ. Truly, our lives are already victorious. And we can stand with great hope, even in the darkest of our days, knowing that God is victorious in us. And we, in these tents, have the Spirit of God indwelling us. Sealed for the day of redemption. And so Jesus, in this point, was in the process of finishing his work of paying for our sin, but it came through his suffering and death. Assisted yet mocked is what we saw there in the first few verses, 21 through 32, as we read them. It says, And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. In this moment, normally what would happen is a person who was condemned to death, who was, who was condemned to die by crucifixion, would have to carry the crossbeam all the way up to this hill, where the upright would be standing. Um, This crossbeam would weigh anywhere from about 70 pounds to upwards of 130, 140 pounds. But Jesus was so weakened by the torture that he had already experienced that they had to call on someone else to help him carry this crossbeam all the way up Golgotha or Calvary. 
A Roman would never be compelled to carry the cross for a condemned person. But a Jew or a foreigner that was there in the midst, they would be and could be compelled by law to carry the, the cross or the crossbeam for the person who's condemned to be crucified. Simon of Cyrene just happened to be walking by. Was it the wrong place at the wrong time? I don't think so. That again is something for us to consider, for us to understand the things that we go through, the things that we experience, the trials that we're facing, the tribulation that we navigate through. Sometimes we think, as long as it's not in our own doing, as long as it wasn't because of our own consequences, I can tell you that in those moments, we know God is allowing it for specific reasons. What are they? Simon of Cyrene was there at the right place at the right time. Cyrene is located by the way, in northern Africa. So he was a long way from home. What is that, like 800 to 1,000 miles away? Imagine that. Why was he there? Well, he was there more than likely because of the Passover, to observe it. And here he was caught up in this moment and having to carry the cross for Jesus a condemned man. But Simon is noted here as being the father of Rufus and Alexander. All these details are important, by the way. Rufus and Alexander. You know, Rufus is mentioned in Romans chapter 16, verse 13. And how it was that Rufus's mother, who would be Simon of Cyrene's husband, if it is the same Rufus, ministered to Paul greatly. Think about that. If it is the same Rufus, then that means that this Simon of Cyrene, at some point after having carried the cross up the hill for Jesus at some point would know what it means to deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow Christ in a very real way. Understanding what it meant to walk as a dead man before the world, and yet know what it meant to keep his eyes fixed on the Lord, having hope in Christ alone, and walking by faith. Well, Jesus arrived at Golgotha, that is Calvary. Golgotha means a place of the skull because it either looked like a skull. So here's several ideas. It either looked like a skull, the top was smooth like the top of a skull, or it was littered with skulls from previous executions on top of the hill. So those are the thoughts. Either way... It was located outside of the city, that we do know, and close to where Jesus would be buried. It was here that Jesus was offered wine mixed with myrrh, but he didn't take it, as we read here. It says, and they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of, of a skull, 
And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. You see, what they had offered him was like a a painkiller, a narcotic, in order to diminish the pain that he was experiencing in the moment. But we know with any narcotic, your mind gets fuzzy. You're no longer clear-minded. And for Jesus, knowing what he would need to endure, he entered into that suffering with clarity of mind, with full knowledge, experiencing every ounce of excruciating pain. He experienced it fully. There was no numbing. It's beyond our imagination. It's beyond any pain that you could have possibly ever experienced in this life. But as Mark continued, he he went through and recorded the account of Jesus' crucifixion, emphasizing some very important things for us to acknowledge, to note. He emphasized the ridicule and mockery that he received in that moment of his crucifixion when he was paying for our sins, fulfilling the Father's will. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Derided him, reviled him, mocked him. When they crucified Jesus, they first stripped him and cast lots for his clothes. Uh, The Romans were really good at crucifying. They knew how to do it well. I, I described... Um, the flogging last week, right? You know, they would, at that point, put the clothes back on, the person condemned to be crucified. The blood would clot and the clothes would stick. And then once the person got to Calvary, the place of crucifixion, they would tear those clothes off reopening those wounds and subjecting his open flesh to the elements. They would would drop. They would throw the person down on the ground, on the dirt, so that everything would, would go into those wounds, feeling every ounce of pain. 
They would suffer severely. Then they would nail at the wrist, severing the oftentimes the medial nerve in the wrists, one nail through both feet, and they would prop them up. It was those clothes that they had stripped from Jesus. And at this point, absolutely no feeling whatsoever. The Roman guards, they cast lots for his clothes. Interesting, even in that moment, the very act of casting lots for his clothes was in fulfillment of scripture. Psalm 22, 18 says that they would do this. Oh, the mockery continued. Pilate, uh, you see, had, had hung a sign over him of his charge. And this is what would happen. They would have a sign. First it was declared on the way to Golgotha, but, but then there's a sign of his charge that read, the king of the Jews. This is why he was being crucified. The Jews wanted it to be taken down, the religious leaders, but Pilate said, let it remain. So it is. You see, it was to bring insult to the Jews and mock him also, Jesus, as he was being crucified. This was all, by the way, a display for the Romans to strike fear in the hearts of all the people. To not ever repeat such an offense. Again, as we talked about last week, how it was that as, as sometimes we go into suffering, we go into trials and tribulation, that sometimes we see others going through those things and, and we're deterred. I, I don't want to go through that. I would just want to take the easy path. But let me be crucified with Christ that the old man would be reckoned dead, that the new man be alive and well with the hope of forever being in the glory of God. For Jesus is my King. He is my Savior. And though I may be dead in the flesh, I will be alive in the Spirit. I will be with Him. It was meant to mock Jesus. But again, in the moment, he was, his eyes were on fulfilling the Father's will. Again, what are we experiencing in the moment that sometimes we think this is too much? Of course it's too much, and you can't do it alone. Not by might or by our power, but by his spirit, his strength. As he was being crucified, there were two other condemned men with him. Two robbers crucified with him. They mocked him. One shifted and he actually confessed. Asking that Jesus would con consider him in that day. And Jesus told him that today he would be with him in paradise for 
he was of faith, knowing that this was indeed the Son of God. Those who passed by mocked Jesus. Also, though, the man who was crucified with him, and we also have those who were passing by, were shaking their heads, wagging their fingers at Jesus and mocking Jesus. The religious leaders also, at that point, again, they thought that they were, had victory over him. They were mocking Jesus. Hey, listen, Jesus could have very easily come down off that cross and he would have shocked them all. That would have been pretty cool if he just jumped down real quick, right? Said, no, I have the power. And then got right back up. But he experienced it all. No amount of mockery, insult, ridicule, or suffering would take Jesus away from finishing what the Father's will was. We need to understand it was all an expression of his love for us. His love for the Father, his love for you and I. Jesus was absolutely unmoved by those who lambasted him. Absolutely unmoved. Forsaken but finished. Verse 33 says, And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James the Younger and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. You know, Jesus was crucified at 9 a.m., at 12 noon, darkness overtook the land from noon to 3 p.m. So for three hours, three hours, there was this darkness over the whole land. And at 3 p.m., as Mark records, Jesus cried out and then breathed his last. You know, John records those words that cry. We see here how it is that he being having fulfilled or completed the Father's will knew that it was, it was done. It was done. He cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Again, considering Psalm 22. Another fulfillment of Scripture. It's in Psalm 22, verse 1. 
It was one thing to endure suffering at the hands of sinners, mocked, spat upon, tortured, and crucified. But hey, that didn't compare with what he felt when the sins of the world were poured out on him and all those who had proclaimed, declared a loyalty to him were nowhere to be seen. He was in that place all alone, fulfilling the Father's will. He felt in that moment as the Father poured out upon him the sin of the world, forsaken. As if God had turned his face away and in that moment Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment Jesus cried out experiencing the sin of the world so that it would be possible in our moment of surrendering to Jesus as Lord and Savior that we experience for the first time a reconciled relationship with the Father restored by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. He experienced for the first time what it felt like to be forsaken. We, in the moment, we surrender our lives to Christ. And I remember that moment when I confessed my sins and I asked Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ to forgive me of my sins, to save me. It's, it was in that moment I remember knowing the forgiveness of the Father. I remember the, the burdens of my sins being lifted. I was truly given a new heart with a new hope, a new destination, knowing that in that moment I belong to God. That's what he went to do on the cross, to shed his blood so that we could be forgiven. In that moment that we cry out to him and ask him for forgiveness, repenting of our sins, that we could know for the first time what it means to be reconciled unto the Father. It was in this moment, as we read of this in Mark chapter 15, that God was reconciling the world to himself. 2 Corinthians 5.19 says, In Christ God was reconciling us to himself. But even here, when Jesus cried out to the Father, the people mocked him. Say, no, perhaps he's calling out to Elijah. Maybe he'll come and save him. Here, give him a little to drink. Imagine in that moment, they were, they were giving him that, that sponge so that perhaps, hey, listen, quench your thirst a little bit. You, you got to hang out a little bit more so, so we can see Elijah come and take you down off the cross, mocking him. And yet even for them, he hung up there. It was for this reason that Jesus was unmoved by all this mockery. I wonder if that's what we consider when, when we, people come against us. If we have the heart of Christ, realizing that 
the people who mock and the people who deride and people who make fun of our faith. I wonder if we have the same heart. Being willing to receive that for the sake of winning them at some point to the Lord. Can you take it? We understand what Jesus received and experienced on our behalf. Perhaps we'd be more willing to be humble and meek. You see, in order to do that, you have to be strong in your faith. Knowing I'm unmoved, I'm not going anywhere, I still belong to God, my salvation is intact. And yet, perhaps what I desire is what God desires that a person would not perish, but would instead come to or reach repentance. Because in all of this, Jesus was unmoved by all the mockery. His eyes were fixed on the Father as his will was to finish the Father's will. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. In John chapter 19, verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the spirit. It was a cry of victory. Much like that, but no. It was a cry of victory. Sometimes, perhaps, we don't think about that as a cry of victory. But it was with this cry that Jesus breathed his last breath, and the curtain of the temple separated was torn from top to bottom. The Holy of Holies was opened up, a place where normally the high priest would enter in but once a year. Now, because of the atonement brought forth by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Holy of Holies could be accessed by anyone that had placed their faith in Jesus Christ. And now you and I have access to the Father. There is no other intermediary. There's no one else in between us and the Father. Jesus, you see, made it possible that we enter into that place. The centurion saw all of this in the manner in which Jesus breathed his last and said, truly, this man was a son of God. Now I wonder how Jesus cried out with that as we think about that. How did he cry out? Paid in full. He said, to tell us that. You see, normally those who are condemned at that moment, they, they can't even speak. They're in and out of consciousness. And yet Jesus was fully aware up to even that point to the last statement that he made, paid in full. It is a declaration of victory. It, it's, 
You can imagine in that moment, Satan thought that he was victorious over Christ, and yet in that moment, it was Christ that said to Telsai, it's done, it's finished, and I have been victorious over sin, period, done. And he breathed his last. Oh, what a glorious moment that is, something that we ought to consider For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Oh, what a power. What a moment. It's in that moment that the centurion, he recognized, he confessed, this man was the son of God. Those mocking Jesus, they were thinking, yeah, you're finished. But Jesus was referring to the full payment of our sins completely done. And as all of this was happening, there were faithful followers of Jesus Christ observing from a distance many women as we read. They were all watching. And then verse 42, And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead... He granted the corpse to Joseph, and Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. So again, Joseph of Arimathea, it wasn't anyone else, it was Joseph of Arimathea who approached Pilate. Not concerned about what Pilate would say, but just desiring to honor Jesus, asking for the body so that he may give him a proper burial. He even in that moment, Joseph of Arimathea, desired to serve at the very least by giving him a place to be buried. Pilate, when he was approached by Joseph was surprised to hear that Jesus was already dead. And so he summoned the centurion over. Come, go see, make sure, confirm for me that Jesus is dead. And he did. And he was. And so he gave Joseph the body of Jesus to bury him. And Joseph, we, as we read here, he bought this linen shroud, took Jesus down, wrapped him in this linen shroud, and laid him in the tomb. And then he rolled the stone over the covering of the tomb. This was all done in a hurry because it was Sabbath. It was the Sabbath. And as all of this was taking place, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, watched from a distance where he was laid. You know, in the garden tomb in Jerusalem, I've described this before, and where they believe the tomb was is down, I don't know, in elevation, I would say maybe about eight feet or so, eight to ten feet, and then there's this this hill, and it goes down, and then there is the tomb. Very easily, I could picture 
these women on that little rise, just watching, watching where they laid him. You know, the title of this message is Almost Finished. Because the crucifixion of Christ is of no value without the resurrection. Victory over sin and victory over death. You see, there were disciples whose faith needed to be completed. Sometimes we need our faith to be completed. To get to the point where we have an immovable conviction. No matter what we're faced with, the circumstances that we're experiencing, that we stand strong with the Lord and continue on, regardless of what we're enduring, going through. Instead of looking at ourselves, we look to the Lord, even if it's at our expense, because there's a bigger picture. There were disciples, remember that Peter had denied Jesus three times. Where is Jesus? Where is Peter? You ever thought about that? In the midst of all this, where's Peter? Where are all the other disciples? I wonder what they're, they're thinking, what they're, what they're doing. Are, are they gathering together? In this moment, are they gathering together? Filled with sorrow? Regret? Doubt? Well, we know they experienced all of that. There were disciples whose faith needed to be completed. I, I don't know where you are with your faith. But I know that it's not, our faith is not perfect. It needs a maturing. Our faith needs a reminder of what it, it should look like. What it isn't. Knowing that at some point, just as Jesus restored Peter, just as they were all used mightily by the Lord to further the gospel of Jesus Christ, just as we know that God used them in powerful ways in ministry, so you and I can also rest assured that God desires to help us grow in our faith through the hearing of the word, pouring his grace out upon us, and help us to be strong, walking with him, knowing that we walk by faith, not by sight, that our trust is complete in the Lord alone. Because at this point, those who had previously sworn uh, a loyalty to the Lord were nowhere to be found. It was just Joseph and Nicodemus and the women who were there to serve Jesus however they could. But hey, Jesus is, is coming and he will resurrect from the grave. Sunday is coming, right? He will be resurrected and their faith will be brought to life like they've never known before. And so I ask the question, how about your faith? Is it finished? That is, is it complete? Is it strong? Is it immovable? Or does it need to be finished? Does it need to be completed? Does it need to be built up? Mocked, forsaken, and raised. When you are mocked for your faith, remember that Jesus went all the way to Calvary and was crucified for you. 
forsaken, when you are forsaken by others, remember that Jesus paid in full for your sins so that you would know that God will never forsake you and loves you with an everlasting love. Raised. And remember that in Christ you have been raised to new life. Reckon the old man dead. And the life you live now, live with great hope, knowing that by his sacrifice, we've been forgiven and belong to God. Is your faith, your hope, and your joy almost finished? Well, at some point, it will be finished. When we're brought home to be with the Lord, it'll be finished. Until then, may we continue to grow, to mature in our faith in him. How do you handle adversity, expressing a genuine hope in Christ or a disappointment and disillusionment because of misplaced faith? C.H. Spurgeon said this, Hope itself is like a star, not to be seen in the sunshine of prosperity and only to be discovered in the night of adversity. You see, even James, who was a very... Practical man, as we see through the book of James, wrote this. In James 1, 2 through 4, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Father, we... We do desire to be completely content and satisfied in you. Lord, that we may be strong enough in our faith to endure whatever it is that you allow us to go through. That we would consider the bigger picture. Lord, you desire that none should perish, but that everyone should reach repentance. And so, Father, with that thought, with that understanding, that is true. We ask, Lord, that you would forgive us as we have fallen short of denying ourselves, picking up that cross and, Lord, considering ourselves dead to the world, Lord, but alive in you. Considering those whom you love and whom you sent your son to die for as well as us. So, Father, help us to be better stewards of, this, of, the, of our lives. That you would fill us with your spirit. That you would lead us, crowning us with wisdom and discernment. That there would be a softness in our own hearts. A gentleness, Lord, that can only be known by the anointing of your spirit. That we would walk in the newness of life, reckoning the old man dead. And Lord, continuing to look to you, for you are the author and perfecter of our faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please you. Let us express it. Lord, even better today than we ever have before. We thank you, Lord, for your love and for the hope that we have in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.